All right, if you haven't guessed, we're in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, so you can turn there, Isaiah 6. While you turn there, I do have a a few things to point your attention to, lots of things going on at this time of year. Uh, First of all, in your bulletin, and if you didn't get a bulletin, you can grab one on your way out this morning, and your bulletin is a brown sheet, front and back. It says, get connected at the top. Uh, This is a list of all of our small group opportunities at Grace Bible Church, both at the Anderson campus and the Southwood campus. And the, the reason that we give this to you guys is that to be honest with you, we're really glad that you're here on a Sunday morning. That's, that's great. But, but we don't believe that Sunday morning is the primary place where you grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The best place for you to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ is in a small group. When you gather together with other believers and for yourself, you enter God's word and study it together and encourage one another and hold one another accountable. That's where life transformation really happens. It's true for me. It's true for all the staff, all the leaders here. The primary place we grew in our walk with the Lord was a small group. So please get involved in some small group, whether at Grace Bible Church this semester or somewhere here, get involved in a small group. We've listed out all of our options. There's way too many for me to to share all of them with you this morning. I'll point out a few just new things so that you're aware of here at the Southwood campus. On the front of the page towards the bottom, it says Grace Life Electives, and the first one listed is, is called Financial Peace. And I know a lot of people are struggling financially these days. A lot of people struggled with debt and with a budget and, and how to honor God with your finances. This class is designed for you. It's designed to give you a biblical worldview of money so that you understand how to use your finances in a way that really honors God. Now, there is a cost associated with this class per, per couple or per single, but no, there's a scholarship available, so don't let cost hold you back. We'll, we'll take care of helping you out if you need some financial help with it. So uh, a great opportunity on Sunday mornings here at Southwood. Uh, on the back of the form, there's a lot of opportunities. Bible study is up at the top of the page. Our primary Bible study this semester is 1 Corinthians. Really interesting, really exciting and relevant and practical book. Some really controversial passages in it, so it'll keep you on your toes. Uh, I would encourage you to sign up for one of those and Particularly, we have, um, towards the bottom of that list, we have a Southwood Men's First Call and Southwood Women's Study. Two Bible studies, one for our men on Thursday mornings, bright and early. One for the women here on Monday mornings. There's actually a number of different options for what you can study if you're involved with the women's small group. Lots of options here. And, and I encourage you, just look over this list. There's also lots of options for college students. Um, you can sign up for any of these options in the foyer this morning, right after the service. Or you can just take this home and sign up online. All of these are available on our website. So, um, whatever option you choose, get involved in a small group at some point this semester. Second handout in there uh, is page that says the one and only at the top. That's our title for our Isaiah series. This spring, we're going to be going through the book of Isaiah. Really excited about it. Really beautiful book. A couple fun facts about the book of Isaiah. It's made up of of 66 chapters just by number of chapters. That actually makes it the second longest book in your Bible. Second only to Psalms. Takes up a, a big chunk of your Bible and Actually, it turns out it was uh, probably the most popular book for Jesus and his apostles. The authors of the New Testament quote Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament. They actually quote from Isaiah more than all the other prophets of the Old Testament combined. So it's, it's kind of intriguing, this book that has such an exalted place in our Bibles. For most of us, we really know very little about it. Out of Isaiah, there's, there's a few passages that we read every Christmas and every Easter. We know those pretty well, but the rest of the book, it's a mystery to us. We really don't know what it's about, what's going on with it, or how to apply it to our lives. Well, that's what we aim to fix this semester. 
As you read the New Testament, you discover that Jesus and the apostles assume that we know and understand and are applying the book of Isaiah. And that's what we plan to do this semester. We're going to study it in detail and apply it to our lives. So we're going to start this morning and I want to start with the the big idea. What is the big idea of the whole book of Isaiah? What is God trying to teach us this semester through the book of Isaiah? Let me answer that question by uh, sharing a little story with you from my childhood. I have a brother, a younger brother. And, and like all young boys, when we were growing up, we loved to play with fire. Fire was, was really intriguing. It was fun to watch. It was fun to build a fire. It was fun to throw stuff on the fire and see how tall you could get it. And it wasn't long before we learned that some things in the garage burn better than other things. And, and top of the list is aerosol spray paint cans. You, you spray paint across the top of a fire and you got a flamethrower. It's awesome. It's really fun. So, so we were doing that. It didn't take long for my dad to catch us. And he decided, man, th- this is so dangerous. This is such a serious thing. I'm not just going to take you inside and spank you. I'm going to show you a lesson. I'm going I'm to do this little object lesson for you. So my dad pulled my brother and I back about 15 feet from the fire that we had started. And he took an almost empty can of Rust-Oleum spray paint and he threw it on. And he was expecting a nice loud pop that would startle us and scare us to our senses. Instead, what my dad got was a full-blown explosion. I kid you not, there was a fireball. It rose up like a miniature mushroom cloud. We had really tall pine trees in our yard. It caught him on fire. My brother's standing back 15 feet. It singed his eyebrows. It absolutely terrified us. My dad included. He, he tried to play it cool, but it was obvious. He was incredibly shaken up. I was talking to him this week. He said he remembers the incredible fear he felt when that thing went off today. It's still fresh in his mind. Now, it, it's funny. Um, my dad and my brother and I are emailing back and forth about this story, just making sure I got all the facts straight. Um, and my dad mistakenly copies it to my mom. And she responds back, what explosion explanation point? He never told her. <laughs> we never told my mom about that object lesson. No way. Uh, but I will say, my dad's little object lesson there, it worked. It worked well. I never mix spray paint and fire again. When other little boys would grab the spray paint bottle or the hairspray bottle, I turned tail and ran because I was terrified of fire. I now knew that fire is not a toy. It's not something to play around with. I had had a deficient view of fire. But that moment of of explosive clarity cured my deficient view and I had a healthy respect of it from that point on. Well, Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah to an audience that suffered from a deficient view of God. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah actually to to multiple generations of Israelites who had a small view of God. In their eyes, God was, was relatively weak. He was inadequate to meet your real needs in life. He was irrelevant to your daily life. When they thought about God, they thought, well, well God, he, he, really, he really just gets one day a week. He gets the Sabbath day, but the rest of the week, that's ours. When they thought about God, they thought, well, God, God is just for the spiritual things in your life, like going to the temple, reading the Old Testament. That's God's stuff. All the normal things of life, that's mine. I got to take care of my problems and opportunities through my intellect, my money, my connections. I got to take care of my life. And God's word, it's, it's really just a suggestion to you. It's, it's good things that you might do, but if you disagree with some of it, well, you're your own man, your own woman. You make the decision. Life is up to you. You determine your own truth. Well, those attitudes probably should sound a little familiar to us. That's the way our culture thinks. We live in a culture just like Isaiah's that has a small view of God. In the minds of most Americans, God does exist. I don't know if you realize that. There's not a whole lot of committed atheists in America. To most Americans, God exists, but he's really not that big a deal. 
God lives in a little box that I open up on holidays and occasional Sundays or when life is really bad. The rest of the time is just in my box, not really relevant to my life at all. That same small view of God has infected the church as well. So many Christians suffer from a deficient view of God. We know that God is important, but he's just one of many important things in our lives. With our words, we declare that God is the most important thing to us, but we let all kinds of things trump God. The stresses and demands of work and school, kids' soccer practice, errands I got to run, my hobby, football game on TV, pretty much anything can trump God. We talk about how important God is, but by our actions, we betray that we have really a pretty small view of God. If we're honest, most, if not all of us, at least from time to time, myself included, have taken God lightly. Well, the book of Isaiah is given to us to cure us of that problem. What we really need is a moment of explosive clarity like I had as a boy with that fire. We need to see God in all of his raw power, his majesty, his glory. We need to see how big and grand he is. We need a moment of clarity that helps us see beyond the stresses and strains of this life and see God as he truly is. Isaiah gets that moment of clarity in chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, it's it's Isaiah's explosive moment of clarity. He sees God as he truly is and it shapes the rest of his life. Actually, the reason we're starting the book of Isaiah with chapter six rather than chapter one is Isaiah six is the center of the book. It's the foundation of the whole book. It changes Isaiah's life radically. It shapes all of his ministry. The whole book is built on Isaiah chapter six. In fact, I would say the whole book is just an exposition of what Isaiah sees in chapter six. It's all about chapter six. That's where it begins. Isaiah's moment of face-to-face encounter with the almighty holy God of heaven and earth. Before we get to that vision, Isaiah actually begins chapter 6 with an important piece of historical information. Look with me, Isaiah chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1, just the first few words. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, Isaiah has a whole lot of prophecies in this book. He hardly ever connects any of them to a specific date. Only does it a few times, and when he does, it's really significant. And this is significant. Isaiah's vision of God comes in the year that King Uzziah died. And I need to give you a little bit of of background to understand what's going on here. Isaiah was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. Let me show you where that is. Here's where Judah fits into the world. This is the the ancient Middle East. You had a lot of major kingdoms, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north, the Medes and the Babylonians over to the east. Those were the major kingdoms and right in the middle, trapped right in the middle is Israel and Judah. Now, Israel and Judah, you think, what's going on there? Well, uh, when the Exodus begins, we really only have one nation. It's called Israel. They were all together. But then in 930 BC, the nation of Israel split into two parts. You have the kingdom of Israel to the north. You have the kingdom of Judah to the south. And of those two, Israel was always the stronger. Israel to the north had the stronger military, had the much better economy. They were stronger in every way except spiritually. The nation of of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was very idolatrous. They were wicked spiritually. They were headed down the wrong path. Isaiah is not part of that country. He's part of Judah. He's part of the southern nation. And for most of Judah's existence, they were poor. They were weak. They were at the mercy of the nations around them. One of the few exceptions was during the time of Uzziah. Uzziah was, was a godly king for most of his life. He took over the nation of Judah when he was 16 years old. He ruled for 52 years. That's a really long time back in the ancient world. And he was one of the few kings of Judah that had success militarily. He built a, a huge army. 
He was able to subdue the nations around him. And and he was strong economically. He demanded tribute from these nations. It, It created a wealthy economy. He launched all these major building projects. The nation of Judah finally rose up from the rubble below all these nations and became a powerful nation during the reign of Uzziah. He was really headed down a great path, faithful to the Lord, successful in everything he did till the end of his life. Right at the end of the lo- his life, things turned bad. I want to share that story with you. Second Chronicles, you don't have to turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 26 records the life of Uzziah, especially the end of it. It says in verse 16, I'll just read this to you. But when he, that is Uzziah, became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you've been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand, burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Uzziah's life is a tragic life. He began so well. He was faithful to the Lord, and the Lord blessed everything he did. But at the height of his power, as the nation of Judah is finally becoming this great and mighty nation, Uzziah looked at himself with pride, and he said, look what I have accomplished. I don't want to just be king. I want to be priest. I want to be everything. So he walks into the temple, which the king was not allowed to do, and God strikes him down with leprosy. He loses his throne at this point. He is shuttled off to a house that he lives and eventually dies in. That was the high point for Judah. When he's off the throne, the nation heads downhill. So just imagine how Isaiah feels on the year of his death. Uzziah, this this great king who you pinned all your hopes in, who you thought he's finally the guy that's going to raise Judah up, who's going to give us security and prosperity and hope this shining star failed, was judged, and now has died. Your nation had finally risen out of the rubble heap, and now you're right back there. It was a time of great disillusionment in the nation of Judah, and Isaiah shared that. He was disillusioned. This this king who he had pinned all his hopes in had failed and been judged and was now dead. And in the moment of disillusionment, God shows up. That's what Isaiah chapter 6 is about. Uzziah has died, but God shows up. Look with me, starting in verse, we'll start back in verse 1. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah receives this vision of the one true God. He sees God as he truly is. And in this chapter, in chapter six, the one true God reveals six things about himself, six qualities of himself to Isaiah. And I want to walk you through those qualities, six things that God reveals about himself to Isaiah. The first thing that he reveals to Isaiah is that he is sovereign. 
That word means that he rules. He is the king. We find that out right at the beginning. Isaiah names him Lord, or in Hebrew, Adonai. That means the sovereign, the king. But this is no king of one nation. This is no mere human king. Isaiah says he is, sits on a throne that is, that is lofty and exalted. Those adjectives, lofty and exalted, they're actually synonyms. They mean quite literally to raise something high up in the air. In the ancient world, a king demonstrated visually his authority by lifting his throne up. They built it on top of steps. They made it look grand. That's how he reflected his authority. Isaiah is saying, God, he sits on a throne that's so high it's in heaven. The temple in heaven, it stands above all. Isaiah is saying, this is the king over all. He has all authority. He reigns over all the earth. Actually, the the seraphim make the same point. Look at verse 3. The seraphim call this God the Lord of hosts. And, and you've probably heard that name over and over again when you've read your Bible, Lord of hosts. It's, a, it's an unfortunate English translation. You kind of lose the point of it. In Hebrew, what it literally is saying is Lord of armies. That's, that's what it means, Lord of armies. In other words, God is sovereign, not just over the army of Judah or the army of Israel. He is sovereign over all armies, even armies run by wicked men. Kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon, idolatrous, destructive, wicked. God's going to tell us in the book of Isaiah, ultimately, they're under his authority. He will use them however he sees fit because he is sovereign over all the earth. All military power is under God's control. He is sovereign over all. He is king of all. And that hopefully would have given Isaiah great confidence. Here, Uzziah has died. This great king that they pinned all their hopes on, he's died, but God's saying, Isaiah, it's no big deal. Uzziah, he he really wasn't the king. I'm the king. I'm the king, not just of your nation, but all nations. And I don't die. I've always been king. I will always be king. Isaiah, have confidence in me. I am king over all. It's the first thing that Isaiah needs to understand about God. He's the sovereign, not Uzziah. He's the sovereign of all the earth. Second thing that God reveals about himself to Isaiah in this chapter, our God is all consuming. It's interesting when you look at the details of this chapter, a few things that you might not have noticed. First of all, um, notice it says that the, the hem or train of God's robe fills the temple. The idea here literally is that that God's robe, this robe that reflects his authority, it's so overwhelming, so large that it fills every square foot of the temple. In other words, Isaiah is not in the temple. There's no room for Isaiah to stand in the temple. He's at the door. All he can do is look in at God because God's glorious robe fills every square foot of the temple. But that's not all. It tells us in verse four that the whole temple is filled with smoke. This smoke, we, we really don't know. Is it from the altar of incense? Is it from the sacrificial altar? Don't really know where it's coming from. We do know in the Old Testament, smoke is a, a visible manifestation or image of the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God fills all of the air in the temple. Every cubic foot of the temple is absolutely filled with the glory of God, so much so that there's no room to breathe. Isaiah can't go into the temple, not only because every square foot is covered with God's robe, but because every cubic foot of air is unbreathable because it's saturated with the glory of God. There is space for nothing but God in the temple. It's interesting in verse three, God's glory doesn't just fill the temple. The seraphim declare it fills all the earth. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. His majesty, his sovereignty, his perfection. It fills all of the earth. It fills all of the universe. All of creation is filled with the glory of God. We call that God's omnipresence. He is always fully present everywhere. Everywhere, always fully present. There is no place where God isn't. 
In other words, God fills all of the universe. God is reminding Isaiah, Isaiah, I don't fit in boxes. You can't just give me one day of the week. I break any boundary you set around me. I am a limitless God. I am infinite. I fill all space. I consume all of your life. I consume everything. Everything belongs to me. You cannot put me in a box. I'm too big for that. I'm too great for that. So Isaiah is learning. God is not only sovereign, he is all-consuming. He consumes everything in creation. Third, he sees that God is overwhelming. It's interesting. You have a lot of descriptions in these four verses. What do you, what do you lack? What, what does Isaiah not describe for you? Did you notice Isaiah never actually describes the appearance of God? doesn't describe his face, his hands, his body. What does he describe? He describes his clothing, he describes the furniture, the, the throne he's sitting on. He describes his attendants, these seraphim around him. He describes the room, the temple, but he never describes God. You get the feeling that, that Isaiah can't quite look at God himself. He can look around God. He can look at the, the bottom of his robe. He can look at the furniture. He can look at the, the seraphim. He can look at the building, but he can't look directly at God. He can't look God in the face. It's interesting, Isaiah's not alone in that. Do you notice the seraphim? Really interesting, guys. It's the only place where they're mentioned clearly in Scripture. Seraphim in Hebrew, that word means fiery or burning one. It would appear that, that these creatures, these angelic creatures, are wreathed in flame. Um, and, and they're really powerful creatures. Just their voice shakes the temple. The temple is coming apart at the seams because they are such thunderous, powerful beings. So these are pretty terrifying beings in their own right. Yet notice what they're doing. They've got six wings. With two, they fly. With two, they cover their feet out of a sign of respect. And what do they do with the other two? Cover their face. Even the seraphim, perhaps the most powerful creatures ever created, perfect, sinless, even they cannot look God in the face. They have to cover their eyes so they do not behold the full unveiled majesty of God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is having a really good day. And he asks God, God, show me your glory. And here's how God responds. God says to Moses, Moses, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, here's what's going on. Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you, you can't handle my glory, Moses. So what I'm going to do, there's this cave on a mountain. I'm going to stick you in the cave and I'm going to pass by. And as I'm passing by, I'm going to cover you with my hand so you can't see me. And then when I've passed by, I'll pull my hand back and you get to see my backside, but that's it. If Moses would have seen the face of God, it would have overwhelmed him. It would have led to his death. It would have destroyed him because God is so glorious. There is no creature in heaven and earth that can look God full in the face because he is absolutely overwhelming. His glory is too great to behold. And that leads us to the fourth thing that Isaiah wants to teach us about God. He is absolutely, perfectly holy. Seraphim declared, God, you are holy. Now, what does holy mean? That's a word you hear at church a lot. We sang about it this morning, but, but what does holy actually mean? Well, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word means basically the same thing, to be set apart or distinct. That's the basic idea of holy, to set something apart as, as not come, to set it apart from other things. In the Old Testament, you have three different senses of holiness. The first sense of holiness is that which is ceremonially holy. 
that which is set apart for the worship of God. So the Old Testament declares to us that the priests, they are holy. That is, they are, they're set apart from common people so that they can worship God. They're set apart for the worship and service of God. So the, the priests, they lived in their own cities. They wore special clothing. They ate special food, all to set them apart from common man so that they can lead the worship of God. That's ceremonial holiness. Second conception of holiness in the Old Testament, moral holiness. It means to be separate from the sin and evil that characterize this world. Okay, moral holiness, it goes beyond just our actions. It, it involves our speech and our thoughts and our attitudes. To be holy means that everything you do, everything you say, everything you think is perfectly righteous, perfectly good. Now, clearly by that definition, all of us fall short. None of us are perfectly morally holy, but God is. God is absolutely perfect in everything he does, everything he says, everything he thinks. It's always good and righteous all the time. In fact, God himself is really the definition of moral holiness. He is the definition of that which is good and right. So he is by definition morally holy. Yet when Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, it's not just talking about moral holiness. It's talking about something more. It's talking about the third sense of holiness absolute holiness. Absolute holiness means that something is absolutely separate from everything else. God is absolutely holy. He is separated from everything that is not God. In Revelation chapter 15, verse four, it says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy. God is holy in a way that nothing else is holy. God's absolute holiness means that he is absolutely different and distinct from everything else. If you took everything that existed and you gather it all together, you have two types of things. You have God and everything else. You have Father, Son, and Spirit and all of creation. That's all that exists and the gap between them is infinite. God is not just a better version of a man or a more powerful version of an angel. He is infinitely distinct and above and different than everything else that exists. God is not like us. God is not like the gods of other religions. God is like nothing in this universe. He is absolutely, utterly other than us. I love how John Piper summarizes this. He says, God is utterly set apart in a class by himself, unequaled, unrivaled, totally underived, absolute in his being and perfection without beginning or ending or improvement. That's what it means that God is holy. And notice Isaiah doesn't just say that God is holy. He says that God is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, you emphasize something by repeating it. They didn't have words like very or extremely. They emphasize something just by repeating the word. So Genesis chapter two, God wants Adam and Eve to really know that if they, if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's gonna be bad. It's gonna lead to some seriously bad consequences. So he tells Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that tree, you will die, die. In other words, you're really gonna die. It's gonna be really bad, don't do it. So throughout the Old Testament, you see places where an author repeats a word for the sake of emphasis. It happens all the time. It only happens once in the whole Old Testament where an author repeats a word three times for the sake of emphasis, right here. Three times for the sake of emphasis. What the seraphim are saying is not that God is holy or that God is very holy or that God is exceedingly holy, but that he is absolutely above you more than you can ever comprehend holy. He is absolutely distinct from you. He is nothing like us. He is utterly holy. It's interesting, in the whole Bible, there's only one other place where a description of God is repeated three times, book of Revelation. 
chapter 15 says, four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now, it's, it's interesting, we don't know, are these the same seraphim, the same guys that Isaiah sees? Maybe, it doesn't matter. They're saying the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's interesting, you look in your Bibles, you'll never see God described as Love, 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 or patient, 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 only holy, holy, holy. Why? Because what God wants you to know about him above all else, the most important thing for you to know about God is he is holy. He is not like you. He is not like the God of other religions. He is nothing like creation. He is absolutely above and beyond anything that we can think or conceive. He is alone is God. Now, that's actually where the the title came from for our series, The One and Only. That's just an idiomatic way of talking about the holiness of God. He is the one and only. There is nothing to compete with God. There's nothing to give God a run for his money because he is absolutely, unalterably, completely holy. That's the fourth thing that Isaiah wanted us to understand about our God. And it leads Isaiah to the the fifth revelation, the fifth attribute of God. Look with me in verse five. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah recognizes the holiness of God, it leads him to terror. For a sinful, finite creature like Isaiah, like us, to stand in the presence of the almighty God of heaven and earth is sheer terror. Isaiah says, woe, for for I am ruined. That word ruined, it means I am destroyed. My death is sealed. I'm about to cease to exist because I'm a sinful creature standing in the presence of the almighty God. And in particular, he mentions his unclean lips. That's, that's a metaphor for his speech. His speech is unclean. And Isaiah recognizes common theme throughout scripture. Our speech reveals the quality of our hearts. As a man speaks, so he is inside. And Isaiah is saying, my speech has not been perfect. I've dishonored God. I've, I've not always told the truth. I've hurt people with my words. My speech has not been perfect. It reveals I am a sinner. I am a rebel against God. And now I stand in the unfiltered, perfect presence of the holy God. I'm doomed. Isaiah understood what Moses learned. If you see God face to face as a sinful, finite creature, that's the moment of your death. You are doomed if you stand before the holiness of God. It's interesting. What Isaiah wants us to realize is there is nothing more threatening to our safety than the holiness of God. That's the most dangerous thing in the whole universe, the holiness of God. Nothing more threatening to your life than to stand before the unfiltered holiness of God. It would be your doom. It's interesting. God shows up in the book of Revelation chapter 20. At the end of time, end of the story, millennial kingdom is played out. God shows up in the universe in all of his holiness. And it tells us in chapter 20, the entire universe in that moment, in that instant, it literally, it flees away. There is no place found for it. When God shows up in his unfiltered holiness, the universe disintegrates at his presence. To stand in the presence of almighty God is terrifying. It is not safe. It is not comfortable. It is not warm and fuzzy. It is fearful to see the holiness of God. So fifth thing that Isaiah wants us to understand about God. He's certain at this moment that he's dead. Isaiah expected the book of Isaiah to end at this point. I'm doomed. It's over. Game over for me. Fortunately, the book doesn't end here. Because God has a sixth thing to teach Isaiah about himself. He is also immeasurably gracious. 
This God who is holy, 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 who is sovereign, who is overwhelming, who is all-consuming, he is also immeasurably gracious. Look with me, starting in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. God's immeasurable grace is shown to Isaiah, first of all, in salvation. Isaiah deserves at this moment to be destroyed by God. He's a sinner. He knows it. He's rebelled against the holy king of heaven and earth. He deserves destruction. Instead, God gives him salvation. This burning coal, it it symbolizes God's grace, his salvation coming upon Isaiah. And there's a, a few things to notice here about this act of salvation on God's part. First of all, it's instantaneous. Salvation is is not a process. It's not a 12-step program. There's no repetition of the thing needed. Just at a moment in time, God cleanses Isaiah once and for all. From this moment on, Isaiah is clean before the Lord. Salvation is instantaneous. Second notice, it's comprehensive. God says at the end of verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Those two words, iniquity and sin, they refer to to the wrong things that we do, to the guilt that they produce, and to the punishment we deserve. All of that, in an instant, is taken care of by God. When he forgives us, he forgives us completely. He removes everything that we've done wrong, all the guilt, all the shame, all the punishment we deserve, all of it gone, once and for all. Third thing to notice about this gift is it is absolutely free. There's nothing that Isaiah does. Isaiah doesn't make any promises. God, if you save me, I will do X, Y, and Z. Isaiah does not clean up his life or reform his character. There's no time left. Isaiah's convinced he's going to die. And there's no strings attached. Isaiah doesn't have to do anything later to merit it. No, this is an absolutely free gift. It's totally God's work. Isaiah is just a passive figure. He's just standing there, certain he's going to die. God does all the work of salvation. Salvation is completely in God's hands. It is his absolutely free gift to Isaiah. That's always true of salvation. And the Old Testament and the New, 3,000 years ago and today, God's salvation of sinners is always an absolutely free gift with no strings attached. Now, we know more than Isaiah did. We know that that salvation was, was purchased with the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. He died for us. He took our sins upon himself. He died in our place. Then he rose from the dead, conquering death. That's what makes salvation possible. Now God offers that forgiveness, that salvation as an absolutely free gift to all human beings. All you have to do is simply receive it. Simply believe it in faith. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and you are completely forever cleansed in the sight of God. Now, if you're here this morning and and you don't know, if you've been cleansed by God. You don't know if you've been completely forgiven by him. You aren't certain that you are clean and will spend forever with him in heaven. If you're not certain of that, I encourage you, please come talk to me after the service or talk to someone else here this morning. There's nothing more important that you will ever do at any point in your life than receive the gift of salvation. Because as Isaiah realizes, there's no other hope than that. Unless you receive God's gift of salvation, you are doomed when you stand before the holy God of heaven and earth. God is gracious, but not just in salvation. God is not content just to to save Isaiah. He also gives Isaiah the grace of significance. He gives Isaiah a significant task, a significant purpose or mission in life. Look at verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. 
God gives Isaiah a mission that will shape the rest of his life. Isaiah is going to be God's prophet to the nation of Judah. Now, what's interesting is we, we learn pretty clearly in verses one through four, God doesn't give this mission to Isaiah because he needs Isaiah's help. God could accomplish this whole thing a lot better than Isaiah could. God doesn't need Isaiah. The mission is given to Isaiah simply by grace because God wants to give Isaiah the opportunity to do something that changes the world for all eternity. But notice Isaiah had to volunteer. Isaiah had to be willing. God did not force the mission upon him. He gave Isaiah the chance. Who will go for us? God says to the court of heaven, who will go onto the earth on our behalf? And Isaiah raises his hand. Will will I do? Will you take me, Lord? And God says, yes. And God sends Isaiah out literally to change the course of history. That's what God wants to do in every one of our lives. He wants not only to save us, he wants to give us eternal significance by giving you a unique mission, a task here on earth that will change the course of the world for all of eternity. That's what God wants to do, but you have to be willing. Will you offer yourself to God? Will you give him your life like Isaiah did? Now, it's interesting. If, if we had more time, we would look at verses, verses 9 through 13. Um, the chapter ends on, honestly, a really depressing note. God tells Isaiah what Isaiah's mission is going to be. He tells Isaiah, here's your task. Now that you've volunteered, you are going to be my instrument of judgment to the nation of Judah. The more you preach, the more they're going to rebel. You're going to seal them in disobedience so I can judge them. And that, unfortunately, is how Isaiah's life went. He was a prophet for like the next 50 years, really long ministry. And throughout that time, most of the people who he preached to rejected him. Now, there were a few like Isaiah who hear the word of the Lord and humble themselves and repent and are saved, but the majority reject the message. Now, the chapter just, you know, ends on a, on a hopeful note. God tells them after judgment comes and I wipe out most of your nation, what's left will be holy. They will be dedicated to me. But Isaiah, you're never going to see that. You're going to die long before that time. Your ministry is going to be incredibly difficult and discouraging. 50 plus years of constant rejection. How did Isaiah stay faithful in that ministry? Well, because he had seen God. He had seen the one true God of heaven and earth. He knew no matter what comes in this life, it is worth following God. It is worth staying faithful to this God because he alone is sovereign. He is all-consuming. He is overwhelming. He is holy. And he alone is gracious. He is my only hope. I'm going to stay faithful to him no matter what comes. This vision that Isaiah received from the Lord motivated him to walk in faithfulness the rest of his life. That's what God wants to do with us. And to that end, I want to leave you this morning with a question to consider this week. As we launch into the rest of the book of Isaiah next week, this is what I want you to be asking yourself this week. How big is your God? I don't mean how big is God in reality. I mean, how big is your conception of God? When you think of God, how big is he to you? How big do you conceive of him to be? Uh, Let me ask it this way. I'll throw out a few more questions. When you think of God, is your God big enough to demand everything of you? To demand all of your time, all of your possessions, all of your resources, your entire life? Or does your God fit into one day a week or, or just into the spiritual parts of your life? If you can fit your God into a box and he's not Isaiah's God, ask it another way. Is your God big enough to meet your every need? Is your God big enough to take care of everything, whether it be a spiritual problem, a work problem, a relational problem? Can he take care of everything or do you have to help him? With your intellect and and, and your connections and your money, do you have to take care of your problems? If you cannot trust your God to take care of your every need, then it's not Isaiah's God that you're worshiping. 
Third way to ask it. Is your God big enough to deserve your complete and absolute obedience? Or is your God negotiable? Can you bargain with him? Can can you get him to excuse the little sins? Well, if your God excuses any sin, then he's not Isaiah's God. Fourth way to ask it. Is your God big enough to inspire fear? When you think about standing before God, does it strike at least a little terror in your heart? Yes, he's forgiven us. He loves us. He will comfort us. But when you think about standing before God, does it inspire at least a little bit of fear in you? Or does God feel safe? Does he feel comfortable? If your God feels safe to you, then he's not Isaiah's God. This week, I want you to ask yourself, how big is your God? Do you see God as Isaiah sees him? As infinite, as absolute, as wholly different than you, as sovereign over all, as all-powerful, as terrifyingly holy? Is that how you conceive of God? Is that the God you are walking with and worshiping in life? It's so hard to remember that that's what our God looks like. In, in the course of this world, in the course of daily life, it's so easy to entertain deficient views of God. That's why God's given us the book of Isaiah, to constantly correct our deficient views of him and raise our eyes to see how glorious and majestic and awesome and worthy he is. I'll leave you with a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Isaiah knew that to be true. The foundation of his life was that he had seen God. If you see God accurately, it will make your life work. Most important thing about you is what you think about God. So let's close by praying that God would help us to think rightly about him. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you and we acknowledge with our words, Lord, that you are holy, that you are sovereign, that you are overwhelming and all-consuming. You are infinite, God. You have all power, all might. You are so holy, Lord, that it would be terrifying to stand in your presence right now. Lord, we acknowledge that with our words, but it's so easy to forget that, Lord. It's so easy to live as if that's not true. Please, Lord, capture us, capture our hearts with a vision of who you are. Help us to see you as Isaiah saw you. Help us to be overwhelmed at you, Lord. I pray that you would capture our affections, that you would demand and capture all of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would come before you in worship and in dedication, devotion, and obedience this week. Lord, help us to see you as you truly are. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be honoring to you. You are worthy of everything we have to give. Thank you so much for the grace that you've freely given us in your son. You were not obligated to do that. And if it was not for your grace, Lord, we would all be doomed. Thank you so much that in his death and resurrection, you have given us life. We pray that you would be honored and glorified by our lives. We praise and exalt you in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.